0: Uh, Chapter 3 began with a man lame sitting at the temple. Peter and John came by. They didn't have silver and gold, but they had something better. They had the name of Jesus Christ, and they told the lame man to rise and walk, and sure enough, he did. Um, All the people were astounded by this. They ran towards Peter and John to see what was taking place. And then Peter uh, took advantage of this opportunity, and he basically preached the gospel, Um, He reminded them that this is done by Jesus Christ, and if they repent, their sins will be forgiven, and times of refreshing will come. Um, Well, not everybody was excited about the message. Uh, Some religious leaders heard about the message, and that's where the story picks up. Chapter 4, verse 1, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. "...greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five thousand. On the next day the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, once again, we thank you for your authoritative, inspired, transforming word. And Father, thank you for the word that it gives about Jesus Christ being our only hope of salvation. Father, I pray that you will open our eyes to see that He is our only hope of salvation. Father, if we see this hope, may we rejoice in it more. If we don't see this hope, may we see that there is no other place to turn. May we see that there are no other saviors available for us. Father, may your spirit work mightily. May our hearts and minds and lives be transformed. And we ask these things for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. What we have before us in this passage is the apostle's first experience of direct opposition, direct persecution. And this will prove to be the first of what will become many imprisonments. Now, the question I have for you is were the apostle surprised by this opposition? Were they caught off guard that there was such a strong reaction to the message? Well, I want to say to you very boldly that they were not caught off guard in the very least. And I say that because by this time, the Holy Spirit had illuminated their minds to give them understanding of what Jesus had said repeatedly. And repeatedly, Jesus had told them that they would encounter persecution. Let me give you just a few examples. If you turn back to John 15... We read this beginning at verse 18. Jesus tells his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also... Persecute you. And sure enough, by this time the disciples had remembered this and they knew it was coming. They knew that it was just a matter of time. Turn ahead to John 16, beginning in verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things, because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And then, of course, there's the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus went into great detail about the destruction that would come upon Jerusalem and the great persecution that would take place. And I'll just read one verse from Matthew 24, 9 for Jesus tells his disciples then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake Jesus is talking to his disciples and I remind people when they go through the Olivet discourse that Jesus is looking his disciples in the eye he's talking to them and when he says you he's talking about them Too often we read this passage as though it was written to us two weeks ago, but it wasn't written to us two weeks ago. It was written to the original disciples of the first century, 2,000 years ago, and he's a warning, his original disciples, this is what is going to happen to you. And again, the Holy Spirit has come upon them, the Holy Spirit has given them understanding, and they knew very clearly, going into the world with the Great Commission, that they would experience opposition, and here it is. Here it comes, just like Jesus said it would. Similarly, you and I should not be surprised when people oppose our message. I can't tell you how many times it appears that Christians are surprised when people react to the gospel, when they turn on the television and they watch the news and they say, Can you believe this? They're opposed to our Christian values. They don't agree with our definition of marriage. I can't believe this. What in the world is going on? And we act surprised. Like we're on defense. We're not on defense. We're on offense. And by the way, if you think that's a football analogy, that is not a football analogy. That is a war analogy. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18? If not, I will remind you. <laughs> Matthew sixteen eighteen, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus promises Peter that he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, according to Jesus, is the church on offense or defense? Offense. Offense. Okay, very good. I'm glad you got that. It seemed like you were confused for a moment. (laughs) The church is on offense. We have the gospel. We're going into the world. And we are promised that the very gates of hell will not be able to stop us. We will pound those gates again and again and again. And I love the picture that one pastor gave of a Sunday morning. It's as though we all gather together, this great army of Christians, and we once again pound the gates of hell. And then we'll come again next week, and we'll pound them again. And we'll come again the week after that, and we'll pound them again. And eventually they will give way, the gospel will go forth, the nations will be discipled, God's kingdom will come, and His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we should not be surprised if the world opposes us. And of course, in the book of Acts, that's what we have taking place. Opposition coming because the church is on the offensive. And if we are going to establish God's kingdom, that means we have to demolish the other kingdoms of this world. And when we go into the world and we seek to demolish the other kingdoms, let's not be surprised if they don't like it. Let's not be surprised if they react. Brothers and sisters, we're on the offensive. We're the ones going into the world with the Great Commission. We're the ones proclaiming, there's a new king in town. His name is Jesus, and you need to bow before his lordship. And let's not be surprised if everybody doesn't respond by saying, Oh, that's great. Thank you for sharing the good news with me. That's so thrilling. Let's not be surprised if some say that, and some say, I don't want to hear anything about Jesus. Shut your mouth. Go home. So Peter and the other apostles are building the church. They're announcing the arrival of the kingdom. And surprise, surprise, some are fighting back. And Luke makes it very clear that the opposition begins with the Sadducees. Look at verses 1 and 2. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, often we hear about the Pharisees. We saw them in the Gospel of John. Uh, We also see the Sadducees, but we don't see them as often. Now, what is the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? I'll give you a few. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, while the Pharisees believed in all the books of the Old Testament. Anybody 12 or under want to tell me how many books there are in the Old Testament? Little Bible trivia question here. Yes, Parker. Good try. Good try. Thank you for being bold. I'll help you out. 39. Uh, the Sadducees did not believe in the existence of angels. The Pharisees did believe in the existence of angels. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, while the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. So notice verse 2. The Sadducees are annoyed because, according to verse 2, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, which they did not believe in. Now, to see how these beliefs come out, uh, turn back to Matthew 22, if you will. Matthew 22, beginning at verse 23. I want to help you to see the belief of the Sadducees here. Also to help you see how devious they were. Matthew 22, 23. The same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, and remember, they don't believe in a resurrection. So you know this isn't a legitimate question, this is a set-up question. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong." because you know neither the Scriptures, because they only had the first five books of the Bible, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And I like this. I see this as a little dig. They are like the angels in heaven. <laughs> the angels that you say don't exist. And as for the resurrection of the dead, now he's going to confront them on their false view of the resurrection. Have you not read what was said to you by God And now he's going to come to the first five books of the Bible. He will condescend to what they believe. I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. Therefore, by implication, there is a resurrection, because Jesus is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even after they have died. Now, to help you kids remember the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Remember, the Pharisees believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They do not believe that there is any life after death. That's why they were so sad, you see. Does that help? That's for the kids. I know the grown-ups don't need corny things like that. But if that helps you, uh, then you can remember that. Uh, and it's good to keep the Sadducees in mind and the Pharisees because this distinction is going to come up a little later in Acts. And turn to Acts 23, and we'll just look at it real quickly. Acts 23, verse 6. Paul is on trial. And it's fascinating how, how Paul sets this up. Acts 23, verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out to the council brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force, and bring him into the barracks. But I just point that out to help you to see that the Pharisees had one view, the Sadducees had another view, and sometimes they would clash over these views violently. So what we have taking place in Acts is the Sadducees rising up because of this doctrine, in their mind a false doctrine, about the resurrection of the dead, which they don't like in the least. Verse 3 continues on. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Uh, They arrested the apostles, Peter and John, and perhaps they also arrested the man who was formerly lame, because a little later we're going to see him in verse 10 standing right there with the apostles. So perhaps in order to stop this impromptu evangelistic campaign, uh, they arrest the apostles and the layman who is standing right there. Um, exhibit A of the power of Jesus Christ that they want to do away with. Verse four, but, and I love that, but it's another one of those buts that you have to emphasize. They are arrested. They are stopped for the time being, but Luke wants to make it very clear that something's going on with the word though. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So we had 3,000 converted after Peter's first sermon. After this sermon, we're told that the number of men was 5,000, and that's not counting women and children. So this circle of the church is growing and growing and growing. And while the apostles are arrested, God's word isn't. This is what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.9. I'll begin at verse 8. Remember, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Isn't that great, I think Luke is pointing out the same thing. You know what? The apostles are chained, but look at the word of God is continuing to go forth. People are believing, they're converting, the number is growing. You cannot stop the word of God, even if you stop the messenger. And this probably had a great impact on the crowd, and I believe even the other disciples who are watching all this. This is what Paul wrote in Philippians. And Philippians, it's good to keep in mind, is another one of those prison epistles. He wrote it from prison. And this is what Paul says in Philippians one twelve and following. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, namely his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. That's great. So they think by arresting Paul now, they think they're stopping the gospel. The gospel, and Paul is saying, I want you to know that this has really served to advance the gospel. This is part of God's purpose. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See what was happening? Paul's proclaiming the gospel. He's thrown in prison. People are watching this and they're saying, wow, look at Paul. Suffering for the gospel. And the brothers are gathering together, maybe at a prayer meeting at the church, and they're saying, can you believe Paul? How bold he is. What's wrong with us? We're a bunch of wimps. What's wrong with us? Look at Paul. And they were encouraging one another. Let's go. Let's be bold for Jesus. If Paul can do it, we can do it. And Paul knows this, and he says, because of my imprisonment, most of the brothers were becoming bolder in proclaiming the gospel. So he says, this is really helping the gospel. And that's what's happening in Acts as well. Peter and John are arrested. The other disciples are watching that. And I think most of them were challenged there as well. Saying, let's be bold. Jesus Christ was crucified. These disciples are arrested. we got to go forth. We've got to pick up the ball. Let's go forth. So I think great boldness in proclaiming the gospel was taking place, even among the other disciples at this time. Verse 5 picks it up on the next day. We're told that the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. This is the beginning of the judicial proceedings. With Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Uh, Annas was the high priest, um, though he was deposed by the Romans, yet the Jews recognized him as a legitimate high priest, but Caiaphas was the acting high priest, and I find it utterly fascinating that we're told that Annas and Caiaphas are standing there on trial, or standing there um, bringing about this trial. Do you remember when Jesus was on trial? Do you remember a mention of Annas and Caiaphas? Same Annas, same Caiaphas who sentenced Jesus. And now here they are, a short time later, having another trial taking place. Only this time it's not Jesus, it's the disciples. And they're proclaiming Jesus' name and healing's taking place. And they're probably thinking to themselves, I thought we got rid of Jesus. Caiaphas came up with the solution that it would be better if one man died than the whole nation, and that one man was Jesus, and they had him killed. But here the disciples are proclaiming Jesus, and they're probably thinking, we we still got to deal with this Jesus. We, We just can't get rid of this Jesus. He just keeps coming back again and again and again, and he does. And the apostles might be wondering at this time if they will receive the same kind of justice that Jesus received. We remember what Annas and Caiaphas said when Jesus stood before, before them. I wonder if the same thing will happen to us. And they had to be wondering that because remind you of what we said at the beginning of this message, Jesus had made it very clear. Here's what's going to happen, fellas. You're going to go. You're going to proclaim pl- the gospel. They're going to hate you. They're going to kick you out of the synagogue, you're going to stand trial, and they're going to kill you. And Peter was told directly by the Lord that he would die on a cross. That's the kind of death by which he would glorify God. So as Peter's standing there, he might be wondering, I wonder if this is it. I wonder if the prophecy that Jesus gave concerning my death is going to take place right now. I wonder if I'm going to be condemned right here on the spot and then they're going to hand me over to be executed just like Jesus. They must have been wondering that because that was a very real possibility. Well, in the meantime, verse 7 says, and when they had set them in their midst, and this is the apostles along with the layman, man, they inquired by what power Or by what name do you do this? Now, I find this curious. Um, Didn't they know? Um, These men are smart. They must have done at least a little investigating. Uh, They must have hired at least some kind of private detective, right? Or or some other religious leader and say, Hey, go, go check into this before we bring these men before us so we're not caught off guard. They must have done that. And I'm assuming, I could be wrong, but I'm assuming that they were told that they healed this man. Everybody saw it, and again, they knew that this man was healed. They had seen him for 40-some years, some of them. They knew it was legitimate, and they knew that it was done in the name of Jesus Christ. So why this question? Perhaps it was a setup question. This is what we read in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 13. I'm going to read 1 through 5. And perhaps this is what they were trying to apply to the apostles. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives a sign or a wonder, like healing a lame man, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. Now I believe this council is having the apostles stand before them, asking this question, by what power or whose name did you do this, knowing the answer that they're giving, hoping that they can say, You're inciting the people to follow this false god, Jesus. The law declares that you shall be put to death. I think that's what they were after, but it didn't quite work out. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Now let me stop you right there. Why are we told that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit? Isn't that assumed, we were just told two chapters earlier, that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon all of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. So why are we told once again that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit? I think John Stott is right, because Peter is filled anew with the Holy Spirit. Jesus also promised in the Olivet Discourse that when they deliver you over, don't worry about what you're going to say. Because it will be given to you on that day what you are going to say. And we're told here that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, which will account for his boldness because he could be put to death, and it will account for his insightful words. The Holy Spirit is enabling him to say what he's saying in fulfillment to what Jesus had said. Peter didn't have the luxury that I had this last week. He didn't have a week to get his message together. Uh, He did have a few hours, though. (laughs) I don't know what he was doing, but I would have stayed up that night thinking, okay, when they stand before, what am I going to say? Um, So I believe he probably did think through what he was going to say a little bit. But he is moved by the Holy Spirit and he speaks boldly. So he says, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, isn't that good? I just think that's a great setup. So he's saying, "Now, now let me get this straight. You're asking us about this good deed that we did to a crippled man, right? That's just a great setup because all the people are listening as well. And even if the rulers don't like it, and even if the rulers will hand them over to be executed, the people are listening. And he wants to make it very clear why they're on trial because they've shown an act of kindness or an act of mercy to a man who's crippled from birth. So he's making that very clear. Very good way to begin. So if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Nazareth, And I think he did speak boldly here, I could be wrong, and I think he did raise his voice because he wanted everybody to hear very clearly who's responsible for this healing. And then he says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he's the one responsible for this healing. And then what does he say? Whom you crucified... Now this is the third time in the book of Acts we see Peter saying to the people whom you crucified. Which has to make us wonder who is actually on trial here. Are Peter and John on trial? Or is Peter turning this whole thing on its head and saying men of Israel, rulers, you're on trial. You crucified Jesus Christ. You're the guilty ones. And then he says, whom God raised from the dead, giving God all the glory. By him, this man is standing before you well. Which reminds us that the man was right there, however he got there. He was probably arrested. And they all know it. Again, exhibit A, your honor is standing right there. I present to you the crippled man. There he is. Uh, Crippled man, will you walk for us a little bit so we can see that you really are healed. All the people knew it. Even if the rulers wouldn't bow. the people would see it and many of them would come to know Jesus Christ. And then Peter continues on. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and has become the cornerstone. The very foundation of the church, the cornerstone, the most important stone in the building, was rejected by the builders and notice they the religious leaders are the builders. Now this is a quote from Psalm 118:22 and it's fascinating because Jesus referred to this very psalm himself. And if you have your Bibles I'd like you to turn to Luke 20 Luke 20, beginning in verse 9. I want you to see how Jesus uses this very psalm and how he applies it. And of course, Peter learned everything that he did by Jesus. So I think Peter is remembering this, and I think now he's applying it to the religious leaders himself. Luke 29. And Jesus began to tell the people a parable. A man planted a vineyard. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And then, when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And then notice verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. This is not just a general parable. This is a very specific parable about the religious leaders about the religious leaders in Jesus' day who killed the beloved son, the heir, the stone of the temple that would in turn fall on them and destroy them, which happened in A.D. 70 when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem in the temple, bringing destruction upon them because of how they had treated Jesus. And here is Peter referring to this same psalm, telling these leaders once again, And perhaps some of them heard the parable that Jesus told or heard about the parable. And he's saying, once again, you have rejected the cornerstone. You religious leaders. Implied is, if you don't repent, you're going to reap the consequences. This stone will fall on you. It will crush you. It will destroy you. That's what you're doing by rejecting Jesus Christ. And then in verse 12, Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John Stott makes a very interesting observation. He says, we notice the ease to which Peter moves from healing to salvation and from the particular to the general. He sees one man's physical cure as a picture of the salvation which is offered to all in Christ, I think that's a great observation. We're talking about healing. And now Peter just easily transitions and talks about salvation. How can he do that? Because of the healing which demonstrates the power of Jesus Christ. Which verifies that everything Jesus said about himself, like being the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, it verifies that everything he said was true so he can easily transition from healing to salvation and tell them that their only hope of salvation is in Jesus Christ. And notice how politically correct or excuse me, incorrect Peter is. Notice the double negative in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no other name. Under heaven, there is only one Savior. And of course, at this point, everybody's up in arms. Aren't there many roads that lead to God? And we say, no, there is only one road that leads to God. And the response is, how narrow-minded, how bigoted, how exclusive of you Christians. And they mock this, and they scorn this instead of seeing the beauty that God has provided in Jesus Christ by providing a way back to himself. And I've said this before, and it's not original with me, but we should challenge people on this front. We should say, what if God is the creator of the world? Just hypothetically. Let's say that God created the world, that God created mankind. And then mankind shook their fist at God, rebelled against God. But God didn't destroy mankind, which He could have, because He created mankind. Let's, let's say that God doesn't do that. But God wants to forgive these people, but He can't just look the other way when people sin. He has to show that not only is He a loving God, but He's also a just God. So let's say that in order to redeem mankind, He is willing to send His one and only Son to live a perfect life, and then to send Him to the cross so that He can be punished for the sins of mankind so that they can be forgiven. If God would love the world that much, if God would be willing to give His one and only Son, would you mock that God? Would you scoff at that God? Would you ridicule the way that He has provided back to Himself? And would you dare say, he hasn't done enough? Because when you say there can't only be one way to God, there has to be many ways to God, you're saying that this isn't good enough. This isn't sufficient. He hasn't done enough. How can you dare say that after that huge sacrifice on the part of God, how can you dare say that He hasn't done enough? That, that's like saying to an earthly father who raises his son to love America, And then because of his love for America, he joins the military. And then he's killed in battle because of his love for America so that we can enjoy freedom. And you you say to this father, you've only sacrificed one son for this country? You haven't done enough. Would you dare say that to any father? But you dare say that to the Heavenly Father. He hasn't done enough. What he has done is perfect. And we should not be astounded that there is only one way to the Father. We should be astounded that there is any way to the Father because of our sin, our rebellion, and our wickedness, which we tend to downplay and excuse. But it is great. And that's why I said during our confession time, we need to see that our sin is great. Every single one of us in this room sinned greatly, heinously, wickedly this last week. Sometimes we like to point the finger at others. And say, well, that person, they, they really sinned. That's a big one. Oh, and that guy over there, that's a big one too. You know what? Your sin this last week, my sin this last week was huge. When compared to a holy God, we are all wicked sinners, great sinners. But God is a forgiving God, and he sent Christ. And we should stand astounded that he would provide a way back to himself, and he does. And this is the message that Peter preaches right here, a message that he gives to people who may have been about to kill him. But he's bold, he loves them, and he wants them to know the message. And I pray that you can see the beauty of this message. If you turn away from Jesus Christ, let me ask you, where are you going to turn? Buddha? Confucius? Muhammad? Where are you going to turn? There is not even another religion that claims to have a leader that lived a sinless life. There is not even another religion out there that claims that their Savior died in their place for their sins so that they could be forgiven. Where are you going to go? There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is unique. Jesus is our only hope. And we should all cling to Jesus Christ in faith. For salvation. And if we do that, we can be among the number who believe and are saved. Let's close the prayer. Father, what a great message of salvation this is in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for everyone hearing this message that you will help them to see the beauty of this message. That they will stand in awe of this great salvation. That they will embrace it. And Father, I pray for all of us that we will be transformed by this salvation. May we not just be saved by it and have the hope of eternal life, but may we be transformed by this salvation, by this gospel message. Father, may it affect how we live our lives. May it affect how we live every day. May it affect our priorities. Father, may we too give our lives to this gospel, whatever that call may look like in our individual lives. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.